Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. Very excited to welcome Prakash Raman, CEO of Ribon Therapeutics. Thanks for joining us today, Prakash. Thank you, Rahul. Thanks for the opportunity. Great. So Prakash, to kick us off, if you could, please walk us through you know, the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Great. Thanks, Rahul. So I actually am a medicinal chemist by training. I got into the drug discovery area when I was doing an undergrad course, actually, in medicinal chemistry. That really fascinated me. That led me to then do a PhD in medicinal chemistry at the University of Wisconsin and a postdoc at Scripps. And I was thinking about what to do next, whether to go to academia or industry. And I got an opportunity to come to Boston in late 99, early 2000, where Millennium was actually just setting up shop in the drug discovery space after the genomic hustle. And it was exciting times because we were working on novel targets that had been identified from the, that they'd done. And we were building drug discovery programs in areas like metabolic disease, inflammation, oncology. And it was really fascinating to me to take all that I'd learned in making drugs as a small molecule drug discovery chemist and really working on projects for the first time to build molecule that we tested in vitro and then in vivo and then eventually in patients. And that bug has never left me. <laughs> I continued to do that at Millennium. Then I got an opportunity to move to Novartis, where I led large programs in the infectious disease virology space initially, and then moved into the antibacterial space as well. And, and it was a very fascinating area that we were working on. We built a compound that went to the clinic, helped patients. But what was really a lesson that I learned in that process was we built a program that worked in patients, but unfortunately, the whole competitive landscape had changed by the time our drug got to that proof of concept, where it became obsolete. And, and to me, that's where I was thinking about, you know, does it make sense? to go back and rerun another drug discovery program, or should I be more strategic and figure out where we should make such bets and really build programs where when it actually does come out and works with patients, there's still a viable market out there. And so decided to move into project management and then eventually into business development, where it was really to looking at external programs and to see whether Novartis would be a better home for taking the program from the early drug discovery and maybe sometimes early development stage into full development and then eventually to the market with Novartis's obviously broad development expertise. So I did business development at Novartis in the early research side for a few years. And that was, again, in the heyday of immuno-oncology, where we were really looking at you know mechanisms beyond PD-1, CDL-1. And we did a whole number of deals, different MOAs. And unfortunately, as you also know, a lot of those second-generation IO therapies have not really panned out. But to me, there's so much promise in that area. Area, so I felt very compelled to continue, and I ended up getting into the late-stage business development group at Novartis and really led some of the initial efforts to get us into the radioligand therapy space, which obviously led to the acquisition of AAA and Endocyte and establishing Novartis as a leader in that space. And, and that was very fascinating because both the programs that came from those acquisitions actually are now marketed drugs. So I feel very proud that we were able to do that. And as I was thinking what next after that, G. Bradner had never asked if I would come back and lead the whole team and member for business development. And, and it was fascinating because not only did he want us to focus on getting new innovation from outside, but he was also trying to see if we could find a home for assets that were at Novartis that were not proceeding in development 
potentially because of the market size, but they were really helping patients. And so we ended up actually outlicensing quite a few programs, setting up new biotechs around them or getting them in the hands of the right investors or sometimes pharma companies. And it was very reassuring that some of those assets have now gone on to become actually approved drugs. But importantly, also, they were able to get to the patients, which I think is really the key. So I did that for a couple of years. And that's when Flagship asked if I would come in and help their portfolio of companies and business development and strategy. And this is now a very, very early company startup. And so I wanted to get the feel for that. So I did that for a couple of years. But then when I heard the Rybot story, which I'm sure we'll discuss in some length soon, it seemed like the right opportunity for me, given my background in medicinal chemistry, small molecule drug discovery, strategy, project management, business development. I felt that the Rybot opportunity would allow me to bring all those together in one spot to lead Rybot. And that's when I made the move last year. So that's my story in a nutshell. Great. Thanks, Prakash. As you went from being a medicinal chemist to then a project management role, then strategic alliances, and then business development, and in your current role, talk to us a little bit about even your own professional development along the way and the evolution of your own strategic thinking as you went from chemist to now CEO. Yeah, no, it's really been fascinating. I think it all comes down to the appetite for risk that you have, right? Because as a scientist, sometimes you're really unwilling to sort of think beyond, at least careers beyond just being a scientist. And then to me, you know, I always felt that there's always something nagging in me that, you know, I wanted to make sure that what I did was impactful. And I felt that, you know, if I just was working on one program at a time, developing a drug and then going back and doing the same thing over and over again, that breadth of impact would not be there. So I decided to take the risk and move into project management. And that was the first time where I actually was thinking not about one project, but really a portfolio. How do we make the right bets to make sure that the right programs move forward or resourced appropriately and therefore can make a difference when they're actually successful? So to me, that kind of strategic thinking was actually very helpful, but also it was in the context of my drug discovery and development expertise as well. So I could at least do an analysis of whether the science actually made sense, but also importantly then, you know, what the what needs are for the particular project in terms of, you know, stages of development and to make sure that they were appropriately resourced as well as got the appropriate insight to be able to move those programs forward. So to me, that was really the first step from moving away from science into the business side. But then I also felt that in a large pharma company with, you know, dedicated teams, you're really focused on a certain number of projects that you can do, but that may or may not be the only innovative programs that you could be doing. There's so much out there in terms of external science. And to be able to bring that lens of the strategic thinking, the science, and then also now putting on the lens of a business perspective in terms of does it make sense and the cost that it would be to bring a particular program into a Novartis, it felt like the right next step for me in my career to bring that lens as well. And, and so I think what I felt is over the course of my career, I've just kept adding, but I haven't taken away from my basic skills. So even today, I think a lot of folks even at Rybon are always surprised sometimes when I ask very detailed questions about physical form of a particular drug substance or, you know, it's the x-ray characteristic of the amorphous to the crystalline material. Those are things that I did when I was a project leader, but I've never lost that. And, and I think giving that perspective and getting that all-round sense of the business, the strategic thinking, as well as the science, I think it's been very helpful to me in my career. And as you reflect on your own career, and perhaps for folks that are listening that are scientists and at biotech or pharma, what advice would you provide folks to be able to become more thoughtful, strategic thinkers so that they are able to separate, let's say, the forest from the trees 
and get a high level overview of the business of biotech as well as the science behind it? I think the key thing is just be curious and see where your curiosity leads you. So for example, if you're a starting scientist in an early drug discovery program, don't just focus on the experiments that you need to be doing for your project. You know, participate in the broader, you know, departmental meetings where other projects are being discussed because that learning that you get from other programs, you can actually bring into your program as well. So the curiosity, not just saying that I'm going to put my blinders on, I'm going to make sure my project is a success, that may lead to success in one program. But in in order to be really successful in your career, I think you just have to be exposed more broadly. And so allow yourself the opportunity to really look at what's out there, learn from what others are doing and bring that back. Because I think that's how you really grow. And that definitely helped me because it wasn't just my project team meeting that I learned from, it was always the department meetings or the, you the committee meeting that you would go and present your program, but you're always there to listen to the other programs. So you always learn from that. And to me, if you're curious and you have that learning mindset, I think you can bring that back and, and really develop into whatever really interests you. It may not be business, it may not be strategic thinking, but it, it's going to be, I think, much more insightful and allow you to learn what you like. All the folks who have ever coached or mentored have always said, you know, what's your, what are you passionate about? And even if you don't know today, just be curious so that you know when the right opportunity comes in front of you, you should be able to say, this is exactly what I want to do. And you know, given your time in big pharma and then going to the VC world and then where you are now. I'm curious, what are some of the things that did translate well from big pharma to then flagship and then to Ribon? To me, it's always the the science. So a lot of people knock big pharma for being very monolithic and you know being very dogmatic. But to me, the quality of science that's done in big pharma discovery organizations is tremendous. It's always done very high quality. It may take longer than we see at biotech, but to me, I think that's really important. And I think in the biotech that I've been involved with, as long as you have the right people, the, the quality does not really shift for when you're going from a pharma company to a biotech if you have the right teams. And to me, that's if we can focus on that and get that right, I think most organizations will be really successful. So I'm really glad even you know going from Novartis to a flagship uh, ecosystem to now Ribon, I haven't seen any difference in the quality, which I think is really good. But then of course, the purpose and the pressure that you have is very different. <laughs> you go from a pharma company to a biotech or to a VC and then to a biotech. And so what I've tried to do is to make sure that there's always the sense of urgency in whatever I do. But importantly, it was there even at Novartis. I mean, we challenged a lot of timelines. We challenged a lot of different ways of working in order to get things done faster. And I think I've tried to bring that quality to wherever I've gone. And I've seen that, right? I mean, in a smaller company, we're always so hyper-focused on what's the data that you can get before your runway is done. <laughs> and so to me, a sense of urgency needs to be there irrespective of where you are. So I think of the right organization actually bring that mindset as well. So be it large pharma or small biotechs. Yeah. And I'm curious, this point of urgency is, is something that's quite interesting to me. And I think Flagship does a really nice job of this as well. I'm curious what you've learned around or how you build that sense of urgency on your teams outside of telling everyone work harder, et cetera, et cetera. But what have you found that works well? So I think what's worked well for me is there's always many options that you can have in order to sort of 
prioritize what you want to do next. What I've always asked is, what are the critical experiments? What are the things that are nice to have? Can you sort those? Can you figure out what's the experiment that if you do today is going to, if the result is negative, you're going to actually kill the program? That Those are the experiments I want to do first, <laughs> because there's no point in pushing the envelope and not doing the right experiments just because you can. It's really, what can we focus on the things that you actually should do in order to be successful? And I think that's the mindset that's really important to build into any teams that you're building, very early teams, as well as the more mature teams, to really focus on that. Because I think without that, there does tend to be, well, I can do five experiments just because I have the money, I'm going to do them. That mindset, I think, not the right way to go. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Prakash. I'm curious, you know, that this notion of failure, obviously risk is inherent in everything we do in biotech. And there's many more shots on goal at the Novartis's and the AstraZeneca's of the world compared to early stage biotechs. And let's say for folks that are perhaps new to biotech or haven't been exposed to that level of risk when even working in the life sciences sector, how do you help folks think about, hey, most of these programs that we're working on or the work that we're doing is likely going to fail and balance that with taking the risks and making sure that the risks are worth it? I think you're trained as a scientist, you know that most of the stuff that you do is going to fail. I think we always come with that kind of mindset. And especially in those smaller organizations, it's actually meaning whether you're going to last another year or not. Right? So, so I, think, I think people come in with that mindset, but you're right. I mean, I think people have to really keep that in the back of their minds. And what we try and do is to tell people, look, follow the data. You don't expect a particular result in an experiment. But once that data is available, look at it. If it's not what you expected, why did it turn out to be as expected? And usually there are kernels that come out of that that then tells you either how you can do things slightly differently, pivot, move into a whole new area of research because you've actually discovered something accidentally. So I think, I think those are the things where having that curiosity is so important because you even a failed experiment can teach you a lot of things. And, and I think sometimes you know people are get disheartened because they didn't get what they expect. But to me, I think the, the real good teams are the ones that take advantage of what they get, even a sort of not what they expected and to be able to move that into sort of the next set of experiments that they would like to do. And then, of course, follow the data to be able to then pivot into particularly new areas. And there are many examples of that in the course of my career that I've come across. Yeah, great. And, you know, before jumping into obviously the important work that you're pursuing at Rybon, one one last question specifically about your own journey. What was something that surprised you, perhaps non-obvious learnings from going from big pharma to then flagship to now that you perhaps hadn't considered or had to learn along the way? I think the in big pharma, you obviously have a great support system. I mean, you have experts in everything accessible to you that you forget to take it, send an email to a clinical person who's working on this particular area that you've just had a question and you can tap into that. I think in, when you go to a, lar- a smaller organization, you don't have that. And to me, that's where, you know, along your journey, uh, one very important thing you need to do is to build your network of those contacts because they become your ecosystem. <laughs> they become your reliable source. So I've made many calls or, you know, LinkedIn is awesome where you can send a note to people that you're not working with anymore. I've always found that, you know, if you maintain that network and continue to communicate with folks, they're very happy to touch base with you and give you guidance. And then, of course, you can always go out and get the experts. But to me, sometimes you just 
you know, I have a, you have a nagging feeling and you just want someone to either validate or invalidate it. <laughs> and, and, and that's something that I think is very helpful. So in Big Pharma, all of it is at your fingertips. In smaller organizations, I think you have to be more actively engaged with the broader community to be able to get that. It's still there, but it's a little bit more tricky to act. Great. Thanks, Prakash, for letting me poke into your past and, and sharing some of those learnings. Now, let's talk a little bit about the immunotherapy landscape and specifically immunotherapy for solid tumors. So if you could provide us some your perspective on where that landscape is now and opportunities and challenges. So as you know, I mean, immunotherapies have really transformed the way cancer has been treated. So obviously with the checkpoint inhibitors that have been approved and all the trials that are going on with new checkpoint inhibitors, it's made a big difference to patients because they're typically safe and they've been actually able to impact the disease. I mean, for example, you know, non-small cell lung cancer now with immunotherapy and chemo is the standard of care. And that was not the case, you know, five, 10 years ago. So to me, I think it's made a difference. But even there, if you think about it, the response rates are not 100%. It's still, you know, variable. The people still progress, and and so that led to sort of a lot of folks trying to understand what can you combine with these checkpoint inhibitors in order to really boost those efficacies. And the problem has been that a lot of the second generation mechanisms, for example, IDEO, haven't really panned out, and the quest continues. And to me, I think that's where the next set of breakthroughs are going to come, where you have a checkpoint inhibitor as your base, and you really have to add other things to those in order to be able to go after the more difficult to treat solid tumors. And solid tumors, as you know, it's been challenging to get T-cells to infiltrate solid tumors, uh, probably because of the matrix environment and just the uh, ability for T-cells to navigate and get in there. And, and solid tumors are very smart about cloaking themselves from the immune system. So it's really, I think, the next generation of agents that can combine with checkpoints that can really break that barrier to be able to have the tumor cells be seen by the immune cells, I, th- I think is going to be key. And there's definitely lots of mechanisms that are being you know, pursued. And hopefully, you know, we'll have some of those breakthroughs breakthroughs which can take those ORRs from like a you know 30 to 50 percent all the way up to 90 percent right that'd be great to be able to achieve that it's still a significant challenge we're not there yet the second generation checkpoint inhibitor combos so obviously lag three tigit etc are still being worked out and obviously this you know every year the new exciting data that comes out and then of course you probably have also seen that you know the ADC that made a significant impact now in solid tumors so I'm excited about that as well because I think again this potential there, not only as monotherapy, but potentially also combinations of immunotherapies that could be pursued. I think, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And over the next five years, I think we're just going to see a lot of data that's going to be super helpful in sort of guiding the next set of standards of care for these more mm. intractable solid tumors. What are some of the learnings from your perspective on what's happened over the last five years that we can apply moving forward? I think the one thing that I would say is that over the last five years, you know, there was this push to really develop a lot of very similar sort of checkpoint inhibitors. To me, I think people are now realizing that it's actually great to have your own checkpoint inhibitor. But having said that, combining with the next new mechanism is actually going to be much more impactful. And I think that's where there's been a significant change now in people really sort of focusing more on what's the next-gen combos that we could do as opposed to sort of saying, well, let me still figure out what the next PD-1 could get a more better PD-1. I don't think people are as focused on that anymore, which is great. And I think the learning is as long as you have one and you're able to combine it with a new mechanism, you're probably going to do that more step change in standard of care as opposed to sort of saying, I have one too. 
Great. Thanks, Prakash. So let's talk a little bit about the work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Rybon and where you are now. Great. So, so Rybon was founded seven years ago, really focused on the PARP family of enzymes. And as you know, PARP 1, 2 inhibitors have now made a significant difference in ovarian and breast cancer, the solid tumor setting. But the PARPs are the family. There are 17 members. They're all enzymes, very druggable. And what the company was founded on was to look at the other PARP family members to really uncloak novel biology. What we realized very early on was that several of the family members were involved in stress response pathways. And as you know, stress is what usually leads to disease conditions, especially oncology, immunology. And so the team was able to very efficiently identify PARP7 initially as an enzyme in stress response in oncology. And it was really focused on interferon signaling. So it turns out the tumor cells actually are able to effectively inhibit interferon signaling that really cloaks them to the immune cells. And so what we realized very early on was that PARP7 was actually a key enzyme in that tumor cells were upregulating PARP7 and shutting down the interferon signaling. And so we felt if we inhibited PARP7, would we release those breaks and allow the interferon signaling to tell immune cells that there's something wrong and you should really go check out the solid tumor. So that was the hypothesis. And really in a very short period of time, as you know, drug discovery takes time, but really in a very short period of time, four years, I think from inception, we were in the clinic with our first drug, the first in class PARP7 inhibitor, oral small molecule. And that compound has progressed to a point where we are now running a phase two trial of our PARP7 inhibitor 2397 with checkpoint inhibitors. In fact, we're doing two different checkpoint inhibitor combos, one with Keytruda, one with Obdivo. So it's actually really exciting and, and we're waiting for data. This year is going to be very critical for those trial readouts. So we're very excited. But then we didn't stop there. In parallel, we're looking at other PARP family members and there was another family member that stood out, PARP14, which seemed to be an enzyme that was highly expressed in inflamed tissue. So for example, in an atopic dermatitis lesional skin or the intestine for IBD or even an asthma lung cells, we felt that you know, if we were able to inhibit that, would we see a response? And, and actually, when we developed our first, our candidate, again, 3143 first-in-class oral molecule for PARP14 inhibition, we were able to show it preclinically that it seemed to really tamp down in inflammation. And it did it by many mechanisms. So as you know, there are the IL-17 inhibitors, there are the IL-4, IL-3, inhibitors. So we seem to be impacting all of them with an oral pill. So that was really exciting for us. And we've been able to now move that molecule into phase one trials. And those are ongoing and will be hopefully in the clinic with some skin condition, or at least in patients with atopic dermatitis very soon. So we're, we're excited by that. To me, when I looked at Ribon, I've not seen many biotechs that are able to, in a very short period of time, move two molecules into the clinic. Yeah. And with, a, with, I would say, cash efficient manner, it was really exciting. And then I was compelled to join. Yeah, certainly seems like you've been very productive in a short period of time. You brought up the point about cash efficiency. I'm curious, given the current environment that we're all in, the macro environment, and then specifically in biotech as well, how has that environment, if at all, influenced how you and your colleagues at Rybon are operating and thinking about the next 12 months ahead? I think it goes back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, do the critical experiments and really be hyper-focused on getting that done soon so that, you know, if there are any issues that come up, you are able to address them early. And I think to me, the environment is today is such that there's so many different companies that are working on so many different things. I think the key thing that we need to be able to focus on and tell 
investors who are, who are interested in the sciences, why are we differentiated, right? Because everyone wants to work, obviously, on a differentiated mechanism to be able to come up with something that's actually novel and, and able to add to the repertoire that doctors have for their patients. But to me, I think if you can show that, you're also showing that with your team, you're actually able to manage the resources that you have very effectively. I think those are the companies that are going to be really successful. And I think most of the management teams in biotech are really focused, especially the current environment, on what can I actually do with the resources that I have in order to be able to get to that next inflection point to generate the right data so that we can actually then think about what next is an IPO, you know, doing the right partnership to be able to move the module forward. I think we're getting there, but obviously, you know, the last, before this whole downturn happened, there was absolutely a of money that was flowing into a lot of different companies. I'm not sure that companies that are still trying to work on something that's the me too or something that's not differentiated are going to have an easy time. I think they're going to have to figure out the right way to put the programs that they're working on in context. So for investors to be really excited and continue to invest in them. We are coming out of perhaps a bit of a bubble in biotech and there was some impact on hiring during that time and and the war on talent certainly continues given the heterogeneity and fragmentation of talent in our ecosystem you know one out of every five biotech professionals switch jobs just last year and we've seen a bit of change now in in this correction i'm curious how what are some of the repercussions as you see it in terms of us having this war on talent going on for several years and how it impacts your ability to execute. I mean, even the current environment, I think it's really tough to get the right talent in. It's it's really difficult to recruit good people. The biggest impact I think this has, because there's people just need a lot of manpower to be able to move programs forward. And I think that the challenge is that we're then bringing in people at levels or without the right kind of training into the organizations at different levels, which I think is, at the end of the day, not only detrimental to the company, but also detrimental to the individual because they're not getting the right training. I'm a big proponent of actually working in big pharma for some time because at least you learn the right way to do things, Getting having that knowledge and experience and then being able to leverage that in a smaller organization later is probably the, the right way because at least you know how to do things right. And I think the, the impact is really going to be because of this war for talent that we've had over the last two, three years. I think we've brought in people into organizations and not given them the right port system to really be successful. And I think the teams that are actually going to come out of this, you know, well are the teams that are actually taking the time to develop their ta- early stage talent, right? And we, I can tell you at Rybon, are spending a lot of time with our entry level associates as well as, you know, people are very early their career and giving them sort of the support system that they need in order to be successful. So I'll give you an example. We had one of our senior leaders in the organization actually put a workshop together for people who recently transitioned from academia into industry, right? And the feedback that we got from those folks was like, this is amazing because, you know, we were so used to the academic environment and we never understood how, you know, how we would fit in into this broader corporate structure. And to have somebody, the senior leader himself, that transitioned from academia for him to be able to lead that workshop and then sort of share his learnings, I think was very helpful. So I think those are the kinds of things that we really need to, you know, overemphasize within organizations in order to get the talent, the right support. And then I think we should be able to at least come out of this a little bit unscathed. I think over the next two years, there's just going to be a need to be aware and to provide the right resources for that kind of training. 
Those are great points, Prakash. In the interim, when you are having challenges in terms of filling roles, how do you hedge against that? Is it, you know, do you end up outsourcing more? Do you end up, you know, augmenting your team with consultants? Any advice there that's worked well for you? So again, going back to my very early comment, it's really your network. <laughs> it's the people that you've worked with before that you trust, either they're consultants that you can bring them on, or you actually hire them. <laughs> because if you trust somebody and you're able to bring them, and it's super helpful to be able to integrate them into the team and to work from within. But but having said that, you know, we've done a mix of both. So we've hired key talent that we worked with before that we know have the right experience to come in and shape the programs based on the stage. But we also used consultants very widely to be able to do that. And as you know, there are so many, you know, pharma restructurings and reorganization. And a lot of those experts are actually out there and looking to help because they still love what they do. So yeah. we've really been able to tap into that as well. Yeah, it's been interesting during the last three, four years or so, there's been a 50% increase in the number of consultants in biotech and pharma, just to your point, because of restructuring and folks just wanting to work in a certain way. They're very welcome to (laughs) to us, at least, to be able to help us. Great. Prakash, before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you to reflect for a minute and ask you, you know, if there's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, what would that be? That's a hard question. So many things I could always improve. I think that the one piece of advice I would probably give my younger self would be to be more vocal and challenge more constructively earlier in my career. Because I think there were times, especially, you know, when we were, as I said, we worked on a program that, you know, ended up working with patients that was not, you know, going to proceed. That's something that we could have seen. And to me, you know, if I had really done my job better and and really challenged that, you know, should we continue doing this in the context of all the the landscape changing around us? I think we could have come to a better outcome earlier. To me, that'd be the biggest piece of advice I could give myself. And so it's really good advice for everyone early in their career as well, right? I mean, I think we usually come into organizations where they're, you know, established leaders, a lot of experience, but we should also understand that they don't know all the details of everything. They're being asked to make decisions based on what they're presented with. And that may not be the whole picture. And you who are more embedded within the organization have probably got a broader viewpoint. If they don't hear your voice, they're going to be able to take that into account when they make a decision. I think to me, it's really a question of, you know, can you influence people, get them the right information, the leaders can be able to do that more effectively. I think in that accelerated and extra type, the really tough business we are in, which is drug discovery and development. Yeah. Prakash, just to double click on that for a minute, because there's a bit of nuance in here. I'm curious how you have changed your approach in terms of providing constructive feedback and what did it used to look like versus what does it look like now? I think I've made a sea change in, in that because earlier on in my career, it was always tough to have those conversations because probably the emotional maturity wasn't there. Over time with the right mentors, I, I must really thank a lot of my mentors who really helped me because all the mentors have taught me, don't lead with what you know is the right answer. Always ask the question and allow the people (laughs) that you're asking them to come to that same conclusion. And I think when you do that, you really are able to effectively communicate really sometimes difficult feedback, but they, if they realize it on their own, they're much more likely to take it and be able to work on it and effectively fix it. Right. So those are things that I've learned that I think, again, I could definitely have benefited much earlier in my career. 
Yeah, wonderful advice, Prakash. And that certainly resonates with me as well. Great. Well, Prakash, it was wonderful having you on. Thanks for sharing your journey and the important work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Raibon. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Rahul. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.